Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Strike Talk. In 1868, famed abolitionist Congressman Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania was in the last hours of his life, and he knew it. He was 89 and dying of dropsy. A visiting friend said, Thaddeus, I am concerned about your appearance. Stevens replied, my dear man, you ought to be more concerned about my disappearance. That's a goal of mine, to be so cool, so brave, that I can manage to say something historic even when dying to be assassinated and bleeding out, but still come up with et tu, Brute, it's epic. Here are some others that dazzle me. Nathan Hale, about to be hanged by the British during the Revolutionary War, saying, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Before being beheaded, Sir Thomas More said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. While being crushed to death by stones during the 1692 Salem witch trials and being asked to repent, Giles Corey simply said, more weight. More pithily, Oscar Wilde's last words were, I'm in a duel to the death with my wallpaper. One or the other of us has got to go. Harriet Tubman said, tell the women to stand firm. I go to prepare a place for you. Our own Patty Chayefsky, winner of three best screenplay Oscars, died after uttering the briefest line of dialogue he ever wrote. I tried. I really tried. And not one but two Confederate Civil War generals had the same last words on their deathbeds, with their last breaths, both Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson went back to their battle days saying, strike the tents. The last words I ever heard my mother say before she passed this July were, I want to go home. And she did. And even though he was fictional, Charles Foster Kane was kind enough to leave us an entire movie when he died after saying, Rosebud. Every three years before beginning its negotiations with the Writers Guild, the AMPTS, which I refuse to call the AMPTP, issues its own famous last words. This year it was, even if you strike, all you're going to get from us is the pattern established by our deal with the DGA. This was short-sighted because 2023 was never going to be a pattern negotiation. And even if it were, no one in the WGA wanted what the DGA had just swallowed. But the stance of the Alliance also failed to recognize a tide that is becoming a wave in America, the comeback of labor. Over 70% of Americans now believe fundamentally in the power of unions, a high watermark. The UAW just walked out with the support of an American president. In California, four major pieces of pro-labor legislation just passed. Fast food workers just got a minimum wage bump to $20 per hour. A statute will now require driverless trucks to have a human safety operator aboard. 
Californians will now get five paid sick days per year up from three. And striking workers will now get unemployment benefits. In short, organized labor is beginning to rebound from decades of impotence. That's important because there are only four ways I can think of to check the unchecked power of corporate greed. One is pressure from consumers. Another is pressure from stockholders. A third is governmental regulation. That is certainly happening in Sacramento, but as long as Kevin McCarthy is swinging a gavel in DC, the federal government is unlikely to help out writers and actors, which leaves number four, a strike. It's old fashioned and a pretty blunt instrument, but as we've now seen, sometimes it's all you've got. Because we, as a guild, remember some other famous last words. Before the strike that forced the Alliance to give us residuals in features and television, they swore they'd never give us residuals in features and television. Before the strike that forced them to give us health and pension plans, they swore they'd never give us health and pension plans. In the 80s, they said basic cable is in its infancy. Come back to us in three years when we know what it's worth and we'll decide how much to share with you. They said the same thing about VHS and DVD. There's no market there yet. Let's talk in three years. In 2007, which led to a strike, it was the internet isn't even a thing yet. But even if it is, we don't think you're entitled to share in any money we make there. So forget about streaming. Authors note, the day after the strike ended, giving the guild jurisdiction over the internet, Hulu officially came online. In 2017, the AMPTS told me personally as talks began, we cannot afford to give you span protection and we will never say yes to it. But they could and they did. Now they're saying we really don't know what AI is. Let's let it develop for, say, three years. Until then, we will accept no limits on our ability to explore it. I know that I have been very critical of the AMPTS on this show. It is because I am desperate for them to be the partners we need them to be. But as we record this, the Guild and the Alliance are scheduled to restart their talks tomorrow. I believe the talks will succeed. I believe the AMPTS will be its best self. And I know Chris Kaiser and David Goodman and Alan Stutzman well enough to know that there is no way they'd walk back into that room at the Galleria without some assurance that the companies were ready to offer something substantial. So this might be my final intro of my final episode, a chance to utter this show's famous last words. I can tell you, they wouldn't be about wallpaper or war or witch trials. They'd be about writing and how hard it is and how proud I am to be a part of a guild that prizes it so highly. This is my third strike as a WGA member. Every second spent on every picket line, all three times, has saddened me, but inspired me too. Surviving as a writer takes guts. Standing up for yourself takes guts. Every time we do it, they call us intractable. And from their perspective, we might seem that way. But I'm not worried about our appearance. I'm just trying to prevent our disappearance. To discuss that, I have with me three brilliant journalists. Please welcome David Frum, Peter Savodnik, and Mary McNamara. Okay, you've all been watching this strike now from your own individual perches. Place it for me in a greater context about how it fits into the picture of labor in America right now. David, can we start with you? Long before, I, I'm not, of course, involved in the Hollywood industries and I'm not super knowledgeable about them, but long before all of this began, um, I've been writing that the big theme of the 2020s is going to be escalating labor shortages. Um, and that is uh, due both to uh, life cycle issues, um, and uh, that not only in this country, but ar around the world. It's not only the United States that had a baby boom, much of the third world had a baby boom too, and then a decline in fertility beginning in, after the middle 1960s. Um, so labor is going to be short, uh, in, in short supply, and that is especially true um, in things that have to be done physically. Uh, that's why the UAW finds itself in a somewhat stronger position 
than it has. Um, art artificial intelligence is a little harder to connect to a machine than it is to just a word processing program. That is going to have a rebalancing effect on many economic issues at the same time as we have the end of 30 years in which capital got cheaper year by year than it was before to the point where it finally by the 2020s was, was all but free. Um, we have uh, rising protectionism everywhere and we're in the middle of a green transition to energy that at least in the short term will be a little costlier than the energy we've had before. It's going to be a very different economic world in the 2020s and the 2030s from the world we remember from 1992, 2020. Mary? I don't know as much as David does about all the various forces at work, uh, you know, pressuring the economy, but I do know that this country right now is more pro-labor than I've ever seen in my life. Um, I do know that we just came out of a pandemic in which uh, the whole idea of work and life and what we're willing to give up to work and what we expect in return has uh, definitely been reconsidered in a major way. And I do know that the Writers Guild has long been one of the strongest and most active guilds in America and taken stands, you know, the notion that you mentioned in uh, in your introduction that, you know, they were going to have to follow the DGA was just ridiculous. They never follow the DGA. I mean, it's like that is not historically what the WGA does. And I think for me, the biggest thing in, uh, you know, in all of this strike is that they, the, the AMPTP knew that it was going to happen. They know what the problems are. They've known for years. They, you know, they wanted the writer's strike. I don't know that they wanted the actor's strike. I think that might've taken them by surprise, but they, you know, this idea that you can use a strike to somehow save some money in the short term is absurd because once you release chaos, you are not in control of chaos. And I think they have been surprised that there has been very little pushback against the writers, that all the pushback has been against the studios. And I think that that probably, you know, all of the things that David said feeds into that, which is that we're seeing a changing workforce, we're seeing changing attitudes towards workers, and we're also seeing a widening economic gap in all areas, but very much so in Hollywood, where the studio executives are now making, what, like 300% more than the average writer or actor? It's absurd. So yes, in a way, this does sort of encapsulate a lot of uh, feelings that people have about you know, um, how workers are valued in this country. Peter? Yeah, I mean, I think just to um, dovetail with what Mary was just saying, I think that she's right, that the, the country is more pro-labor, pro-union than it has been probably in a half century, if not more. Um, and, and what's happening in Hollywood is in keeping with what's going on at, at Starbucks and Amazon and Trader Joe's and Microsoft and uh, you know Chipotle and, uh, and and look the NFL running backs who are who are pissed off about you know basically you know getting damaged uh, more than the other player on the gridiron and and not securing second second contracts um, in, the, in the larger context of sort of like labor and politics labor has more strength more muscle than than it's had at any point um, you know in decades um, I also think that. That compounding that or, or, or helping to fuel that is a is a growing frustration, anger on, on all sides of the political spectrum, um, geared toward or, or trained on, focused on um, corporate interests, and this is driven by a number of things. 
both parties now are essentially, you know, owned by to one degree or another corporate interests. Uh, this has been the case for uh, at least, you know, 15, 20 years where there's, there's a central parity between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to, you know, um, corporate funded PACs, um, individuals working for, for corporations giving to, to, um, to the parties. So, so I think, you know, what's happening in Hollywood is, is part of a, a broader rebellion against um, the, the, the plight of labor and, um, and the controlling interests or, or ruling class, if you will. What is your sense overall about the strategy of corporate America in terms of dealing with labor? Does corporate America actually believe that labor will never rumble in a way that's meaningful and that they can just continue to exacerbate this problem of the disparity between the two? Specifically in Hollywood, I think there was a feeling that there was a short-term benefit to having a writer strike because in this case, uh, many of the people had overspent or spent unwisely. They had entered streaming when they weren't prepared for it. They, streaming is a model, a business model that essentially does not work um, because you cannot, as as I can tell you, as a long time worker at the LA Times, no one survives by subscribers alone. You have to have advertising. Every media, um, every media platform in the world is struggling with that right now. So to you know start a business that is essentially subscriber driven is you know was absurd from the onset. You know the idea is if you know that you're doing you know that that you're ripping off your workers, the longer that you can continue to do that, you're saving money. You know, so it's like the longer it's like it, you're just pushing back the inevitable. And then, you know, strikers get tired. They they run out of money so that maybe you don't have to offer them as much. I mean, that's the, that's the tactic of of management throughout strikes throughout history, which is like we want to give you the least that you will accept. And the way to do that is to starve you out, basically. I mean, that's what they were saying. You know, the, the deadline article in which quoted some, you know, unnamed sources of studio executives saying we're going to do it until the writers lose their houses. I mean, you know, that's the idea. And so, yeah, I think it's just they want to inflict pain so that then they don't have to they don't have to pay as much in the end. You know, but I don't think it's going to work this time. That's that's the big surprise. I, I think you can go down a, a, some misleading byways if you start thinking of labor as a thing, um, that the story of the United States um, since in our lifetimes has been increasingly different, increasing differentiation among different kinds of, of labor. Um, and uh, the way to tell a way to tell the story is in, in 1972, um, if you had similar, uh, otherwise similarly situated men in a similarly situated region, um, and one had a college degree and one didn't, the pay gap between them would, would be relatively narrow. Um, it would widen and widen and widen for the next half century and probably reach its maximum point in the late 2010s. Um, and what looks to me to be happening now is that that widening of the gap between credentialed and educated labor and less credentialed and less educated labor, that's about to start to shrink for two reasons. Basically, from the 1970s until very recently, uh, uncredentialed and less educated labor was exposed to global competition, um, and it was more easily replaced by technology. Um, and... Uh, what we ha we're seeing now is that um, what what happened, uh, what was once true uh, for the less credentialed and less well-educated is becoming true for the more uh, educated. If you're a radiologist, you're competing with radiologists in Bangalore. Uh, if, and if you are a lawyer, you are exposed, or a writer, you're exposed to technological competition because a uh, AI can do many of the things um, that, uh, that a writer or a lawyer, you needed a, a human being to do. 
Meanwhile, because of um, the decline in world populations, because migration is becoming more difficult, uh, the less credentialed and less educated are finding themselves more insulated from global competition and less exposed to the newest forms of technology than their more credentialed counterparts. Um, and so what you're, what you're, one of the things that, um, and I think this is one of the reasons why so many professionals are feeling the, the, um, the world so uncomfortable right now is that they are exposed not only to pressures from claims on, on capital investment, but their, uh, their advantage over their less credentialed counterparts is, is about to shrink, has begun to shrink. I think that's a very important point, just to pick up on that for a moment, Billy. Um, the, the, the idea or our idea of what labor means and, and who a worker is in America is changing dramatically. So I think I think there's an idea in, um, in sort of the, the popular consciousness of, of the, the labor or the worker as blue collar on an assembly line um, or in a coal mine or something like that. But, but those jobs are mostly gone. When we talk about labor in America today, we mean increasingly people, you know, in in the so-called creative classes, people um, who, who are not necessarily doing physical labor in the way that we we once we once imagined it. That's not to say that, that there's not a lot of that. Um, the Starbucks barista, the Amazon fulfillment worker, they're doing physical labor, but it's it's a different kind of labor. And so I think part of what's happening right now in in, in the country is is this. This evolution is happening, and I think that the public is coming around to this idea of a, of a, of a different kind of, of worker. If labor is going to be this more amorphous um, entity, how does that impact politics now? Does labor matter in D.C. in the way that labor mattered five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago? Do unions matter? much less. I mean, it used to be the head of the AFL-CIO was one of the most important um, people in America. When, when you, the uh, C-SPAN a little while ago released the Lyndon Johnson tapes. And one of the things that, um, they, they played them every afternoon, you could hear them on the way to the store. And one of the things that was just fascinating is the only person on those tapes who never flattered President Johnson was George Meany, because he didn't have to. Uh, he was he was just, George Meany was, of course, the head of the AFL-CIO, and he was one of the most important people in the country. Uh, he could he could shut down the country in a way that no no single corporate CEO could do. They would flatter when they, when you got a CEO on the phone. He flattered the president, but George Meany did not. Peter, let's talk about capitalism more generally. Then, um, is the nature of capitalism such that all companies are always looking to devour one another, and can that ever be reined in? I mean, I, I think it is the nature of capitalism that all companies are trying to grow, um, make more money, acquire more market share. I, I think that's on balance been a good thing for for the country, the world. It's, it's led to phenomenal growth and opportunity, but of course, it has its its unintended and unwanted side effects. And and you know, ostensibly, the role of government is to try to is try to mitigate that. Um, so so you know, with regard to Hollywood, I, I have no idea how that's going to play out. I mean, to, to me, the, the bigger picture when, when it comes to the, the writers, um, I, I think this fits into a, a broader concern or, or question really about sort of workers or worker units across the country. There's a, it seems to me like there's a changing attitude at the very top toward, toward um, writers, workers in general. Um, uh, with, with the sort of with, with the, the the arrival of Silicon Valley and tech, um, which I think tends to view workers as as kind of question marks. Do, do you know we need these people for now? 
Um, but but there's always the for now part. And I think I think the idea is ultimately right. We want to get to a place where we don't employ any of these people. We just we 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 build a, a smart enough app or or program or whatever that enables us to circumvent all human labor because who wants to deal with human beings? And I think what's happening in Hollywood is 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 really no different in that regard than you know, what, what's happening or what's going to be happening at every McDonald's around the world and every Starbucks and every supermarket and every gas station and everywhere where human beings are required and, and ownership would prefer not to have to deal with them. Uh, and, and obviously where, 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 where people are, are, you know, you know, creatives are, 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 are coming up with content at the sort of level they are in Hollywood, they probably have like a, a longer shelf life than, than, you know, a barista or, you know, a checkout clerk, but, but, but they're facing, I think the same dynamic. So David, I am a capitalist to my core, but what happens to capitalism when it has no guardrails applied to it? If you are specifically involved in the world of big budget entertainment, it, it must feel like the industry is concentrating around you into fewer and fewer hands, but open the aperture a little wider and you see that uh, media entertainment, nonfiction are being exposed to the uh, greatest reduction in barriers in the history of the world. Maybe you have to go back to the advent of the printing press to see anything like it. Uh, anyone who, who has um, a smartphone is a media creator, is an entertainment creator. Um, and all of us are being exposed to new kinds of co competition um, in, in ways that have effects beyond anybody's job or income. Um, we, it used to be that if you got mail or communication from a crackpot, even as recently as 20 years ago, a crackpot anti-vaxxer, it would physically look different from something from the Centers for Disease Control or from the Mayo Clinic. Today, it looks, it looks the same. Um, and increasingly, these YouTube platforms look like TV shows. And how does anyone tell, tell them apart? Um, and so there, it's possible to um, redefine what counts as information in a, in a whole new way that, is, um, that has all kinds of whirlwind effects. But specifically in entertainment, we can't increase the number of minutes in the human day. Uh, the, and every minute that someone spends watching a TikToker from Burma doing a dance routine um, is a minute that they are not spent, that is not spent watching one of the programs that is produced by the traditional entertainment industry. And so we're all going to be living in a, in a different kind of world exposed to um, much more entry. The benefit is we all have opportunity to learn from and enjoy things that would never been visible before, projects that could never been made. Ambitious new films can be imagined, can be done with people with very cheap equipment in a way that, that once couldn't be. Um, and there, there are going to be many, many more independents. But that means that, that um, the kind of steady, regular, predictable income that people used to get, that is under pressure. Okay, but circling back to the question, if you have capitalism with no guardrails. And by that, I mean that companies are allowed to, uh, to abuse employees and in a weird way to abuse one another. What's the ultimate result of that? Is the ultimate result of that um, that workers have no choice but to gather together and strike uh, to do better? Um, does the government have to stiffen in a different way uh, to become trust busters, as as the government did in Teddy Roosevelt's era, um, where does it all go if if capitalism can't police itself? Yeah, and I would add that I think like we're 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 I don't think this is a failure. What's happening right now in Hollywood or 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 at Amazon or anywhere else uh, where where you're seeing a lot more um, you know worker discontent, anger, unionization, 
uh, I, don't, I don't think that is a reflection of, of a failure of capitalism so much as the shifting plate tectonics in the American economy and the global economy. Uh, and some of that discomfort and unhappiness is, is probably uh, unavoidable, um, inevitable, and, and, and we're in a kind of sorting out period. And what happens, uh, you know, over the next, you know, one, two, five, 10, 20 years will, will, will have a very important, you know, impact on, on sort of the, the larger structure in which we're all sort of inhabiting working over the next several decades, but, um, or whoever is here in the next several decades. But, but the, the, the point being that, that I think like we're, we're more in this, you know, kind of like in between space than we are sort of in a, in a crisis point. I feel like I need to step in and just remind everybody that before the last writer's strike, 2007, so like 2000, in the early 2000s, everybody thought television was dead because of precisely what David just described, that everybody was, I mean, TikTok wasn't in existence, but everybody thought young people are going to stop buying televisions, they're going to stop watching television, they're going to just watch little bitty snippets of webisodes on their phones. And the networks and the television creators all started like, okay, that's what we're doing. So like, let's give, let's get rid of the 10 o'clock hour. We don't need scripted drama. The family comedy is dead. I mean, everything, I mean, I know because I came up, became a television critic right when everybody was telling me that television was dying. And then AMC decided to get into original scripting, scripted drama with, you know, with Mad Men, Breaking Bad, and then Walking Dead. And suddenly television just freaking exploded and everybody was making nothing but one hour dramas and family comedies and all of the things that have been declared uh, DOA uh, just a few years previously. So I do think we need to be careful. The, the technology changes all the time. And as, you know, as Billy said in his introduction, every time the technology changes, the studios, I'm not talking about, you know, management in general or labor in general, but in Hollywood, the studios say, oh, we have no idea. You know, we might, this might just be the end of us. You know, VHS, nobody's going to go to the movies anymore. DVDs, nobody's going to go to the movies anymore. Uh, you know, DVRs, it's going to ruin television. I mean, whatever, whatever. It's like every new technology comes with the studios saying, this is going to take a big bite out of our profits. So we can't afford to pay the creators. We can't afford to share the profits with the creators. And, um, and inevitably <laughs> the industry survives, it changes for sure, but we're looking at, you know, quarterly profits from most of the studios were up, you know, I mean, partly due to the strike and they weren't having to, but they aren't, they're not, <laughs> they're not flatlining, you know? So, I mean, I, I do think that yes, there, there is a change afoot and it may, you know, irrevocably change the industry and how people are paid and what people can expect. I think we certainly, you know, the death of the 23 episode television series, I think is probably like real, um, except for, you know, unless you're Dick Wolf or, you know, a few, um, you know, s small number of people. And, and yes, there will be fewer television shows because Netflix and, and others just outspent themselves and they can't afford to keep doing that. They can't afford to keep offering a few showrunners a jillion dollars just so they're playing on their team. Um, so those things are going to have to change. But I do think we need to be careful um, the threat from outside creators has been real for 25 years and, and 
in that time, we saw a television renaissance like we've never seen since the 1970s, where the quality and the and the shifting, you know, we saw also just a, a wild efflorescence of diverse stories like we'd never seen before on television. We saw women become showrunners and people of color have their own television shows like in a way that had never happened before. So um, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't think this is as new as people think it is. I think it is a pattern of how Hollywood works. The the technology changes. The studios say, "We oh my God, we're scared. We can't afford it, so we're gonna take it out of the wages and uh, and and the the guild strike." And this time, you know, I just feel like the studios thought they were gonna be able to get away with just offering better wages. And now this, you know, the guilds are like, no, we need the writer's room address. We need residuals addressed. We need transparency from the streamers address. We need AI addressed. And then I'm really hoping that this week they are going to make meaningful roads into addressing that because otherwise I, you know, I don't know. We could see the strikes go on through the end of the year, which is bad for everybody. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It's like that, you know, the AMPTP is worried about their shareholders. I'm worried about the local economy. <laughs> I'm worried about all the people who don't have a say in any of the negotiations who are out of jobs. And that's, to me, it's reprehensible. Their tactic is reprehensible. Peter, what is the role of AI in this, not just in Hollywood, but, but nationally and internationally? Do you think that we are moving towards a version of a jobless economy? I don't think it'll be jobless. I think it'll be very, very different than what we have now. And and I think people will will channel their energies and their time and their talents and abilities into into you know new and and probably right now un- uncharted or unimagined you know spaces um, opportunities. I, I think that what makes right now so unsettling is 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 the is the uncertainty of it all um everyone i think who is of a certain age maybe over 40 50 is aware that the old the old structures the old the old way the the economy was organized our politics the culture all the old divisions and compartments are are much much more fluid now everything is up in the air you know like what, what most of all what's happening is that there's just this enormous number of uncertainty about where we are and where we are going, um, it's almost certain that things will, there'll be a certain kind of clarity or clarification or kind of a, a focusing that takes place over the next several years. But but that's cold comfort to people who are swimming through this right now. Let me ask you, I, mean, I want to make a point about AI. If, if you would stop a visionary of the future like Fritz Long 100 years ago and said, a century from now when robots are available, what will the coffee industry look like? And he's uh, simple. We'll have giant vats uh, operated by robots, brewing billions of tons of coffee at a time, dispensing them robotically um, into individual cups and serving them robotically uh, at uh, fractions of a penny. And you say, Mr. Long, would you believe it if instead what society did was use the wealth from uh, technological change to employ individual people to hand froth uh, coffees, making little images uh, on the top of, of, of the coffee cup at uh, at you know seven eight nine ten dollars a cup, and that we will actually use labor that way. Say, that 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 defeats the whole point of having the robot. So you know that it's the robot creates wealth, and then how people use the wealth is an expression of human taste and uh, and 
unpredictability and peculiarity. So it, it may be um, that what AI does is, um, you know, uh, write every script in the future, but it, it may it may be that actually what, um, I mean, I'm sure, look, years before AI, you knew the phrase. Didn't you encounter scripts and say, I think the script was written by a robot, but it was actually written by a human being just being formulaic. Um, and that uh, maybe what happens is that part of every industry, the part that was always formulaic, whoever was writing scripts for Namor, Prince of Atlantis, they get replaced by, uh, they get replaced by an AI program, but other things don't. Um, I think we run out of jobs when we run out of things that human beings want, and we're never going to run out of things that human beings want. Uh, but what we are going to see is that professionals are going to be exposed to um, the kind of competition that the less credentialed part of the economy has been exposed to, and there are going to be adaptations, and there some of it will be painful, but also a lot of it will have some some rewards. And and generally, society will become more wealthy and more able to buy goods and services and produce new products. Corporations have an enormous amount of power in America. That's always, at least, the promise has been that that has been checked by governmental regulation. If corporations have access to something with the awesome power of something like AI, will we reach a place where corporations ultimately have more to say about the direction of America than the American government does? Is that possible? I don't think we have to wait for AI. I mean, the, the proverbial town square that we that we all take part in uh, is now run by privately held corporations. Um, I'm referring to social media, right? Like, so we, it used to be the case we have like big debates or, or social gatherings in like the, the, the so-called town square, right? And it was it was built by, administered by a, a, a local government that perhaps got funds from um, the state government or the federal government. Uh, and, and everyone ostensibly had some kind of role in its construction and, and administration. But, but now the, 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 the town square, as it were, is, is, is what? It's, it's Meta, it's, uh, it's Twitter, it's or X, or Instagram, uh, Google, Apple, etc. So how do we, how, how do private citizens, uh, individuals have any say, control over uh, sort of like the, the construction of the administration of, of that town square? Uh, th that's yet to be determined. But um, I don't think we have to wait for AI to, to, to sort of start wondering about these nightmare scenarios. I very much doubt that there is a major tech corporation in any field, including the tech companies, that believes itself to be more powerful than the United States government. Uh, and the, the, one, uh, the one head of a company who probably does believe that, which is Elon Musk, is going to find out after this latest uh, adventure where he tried to run his own private foreign policy, how untrue. Uh, it is that he is more powerful than the United States government, and and I, one way to bring this all home is to think, how come these corporations that are that we wonder are they more powerful than the US, United States government? Everyone says, well, they're obviously not more powerful than the European Union. The European Union can make the rules, and Facebook obeys them. Uh, in the United States, not. Well, it, it isn't that the European Union is a more powerful, robust superpower than the United States. It just chooses to exercise power differently. So when government isn't acting, that is not a sign that the government is not in control. It's just a sign that the United States has made, and I would say probably correctly, uh, uh, a calculation that 
um, accepting some degree of abuse by tech companies is worth it for the creativity and ferment and innovation you get. And the European Union has decided, no, we're going to clamp down and protect privacy better and uh, protect, prevent many kinds of abuses. At the same time, there are very few major technology companies originating in the European Union. So that's the trade-off governments make. But the fact the United States government is not exercising its latent power doesn't mean that that power isn't there in the form of a big mallet just out of the camera picture. Um, and every corporation head, I think, is aware that the big mallet is there and could be used at any time. But does that mallet ever come out if Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House? I have engaged in this conversation, not necessarily about corporations, but also like, you know, is culture more important than politics? Is culture more influential than politics? And as a woman who's watched my rights eroded in the past year in a way that I never thought that would happen, I would say nothing is more important than politics because politics is what decides what you are allowed to do and not do with your own body. And so it's like no corporation is, I mean, they may fund the politicians, but those, you know, that's the work of a handful of men who have taken it upon themselves to make decisions. So I, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like this, you know, the past six years has been an exercise in making sure everybody's aware that politics is still a very big force for good or ill in this country and that trying to, you know, say that there are other interests that, you know, may have influence on politics for sure, but that um, Trump politics is, you know, that that's a dangerous way to think, I think. Well, this show has always been an attempt to put the strike into context, and you certainly just did. Um, so we are going to leave it there. Thank you to the three of you. Uh, just spectacular insight. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to be around these kinds of intellects. Uh, I'm very, very grateful to each of you for, for joining us today. Thanks very much, Billy. Pleasure. There are a million reasons to love the movie Saving Private Ryan. It single-handedly reawakened America to the awesome sacrifices made by the soldiers who saved humanity in World War II. More, it's got the best battle sequence, maybe the best action sequence of any kind, ever made. But it's also got a great last line for its hero. As Captain John Miller, Tom Hanks, is dying, he looks at Matt Damon and says, earn this. No one in the Guild today earned the protections we enjoy on credits, residuals, minimums, or health and pension. Those were all won for us decades ago by writers we'll never meet who gifted us those things by going on strike, just as we're on strike now for the purposes of gifting certain protections to the writers that will follow us. That is how we earn it. In a real way, the Hanks character in that movie was doing the same thing. In sacrificing himself for Private Ryan, he was earning the freedoms won for him by soldiers who had fought before him in the First World War or in the Civil War. And the writers we're striking for now will earn what we're doing by fighting future battles for the generations that will follow them. It's how guilds work. And it's why we win. Because no such mentality exists in the corporate world. No CEO ever got moved to tears by the idea of, gee, the guy who was CEO before me grossly undercompensated writers just so I would have the privilege of grossly undercompensating writers myself. I really have to honor that kind of sacrifice. No, we're right, and we're earning this, and to the generation that will follow, all I can say is, it is our privilege to do so. I truly hope those are my last words on the subject. I want to thank my magnificent guests and my brilliant producers, Jade Collins and Hannah Baker. Please join me next week when my guests will be Charles Foster Kane and Captain John Miller. This is Strike Talk. I can never get